if, if we want to discourage walking and cycling, speed up the city. If we want to encourage walking and cycling, slow it down and create slow streets where it becomes enjoyable to go walking and, and it's also safe to let your children walk and cycle, especially to school. And that frees up enormous amounts of time for parents as well. Hi everyone, welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm truly honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, July 2nd, 2021. And in this week's episode, I'm delighted to share with you this discussion I recently had with Paul Tranter, Honorary Associate Professor in Geography in the School of Science at the University of New South Wales, Canberra in Australia, where he researches children's well-being and the dominance of speed and mobility in urban planning and society. His work has demonstrated that child-friendly modes such as walking, cycling, and public transit are also the modes that paradoxically reduce time pressure for urban residents. In this conversation, we dive into the details of his recent book, Slow Cities, Conquering Our Speed Addiction for Health and Sustainability, that he co-authored with Rodney Tolley. But before we roll into those discussions, please allow me a moment to mention that this episode is once again being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Now, if you too are in a position to contribute, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and navigate to the donation page. However, if making a donation is just not possible at this time, no worries. Please know that you can still help me out in a big way by spreading the word about the Active Towns Initiative and this podcast. Thank you so very much for tuning in and whatever support you can send my way as I strive to grow this movement to create a culture of activity. One final reminder before we get started, if you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform. This really does help with its visibility. Thanks. Okay, it's that time. Let's get this discussion about slow cities with Professor Paul Tranter rolling. Paul, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thank you very much, John. Well, hey, first of all, thank you so much uh, for allowing me to steal a little time away from you from the future because uh, we're, we're, we're talking and it's already tomorrow your, your time. So how, how's everything going in the future? Uh, well, it's a beautiful day here today. The sun's just come out, the fog's lifted. And uh, yeah, you've probably heard that Canberra is, you know, the best city in the universe, and that's where we are at the moment. Well, hey, there you go. Excellent. That's good to hear. You know what? To get us started, why don't we uh, have you just share a little bit about your background? Right. Uh, John, I'm a a geographer, and uh, I first got interested in the sort of the active transport idea and active transport, child-friendly transport, sustainable transport. They're all pretty much the same thing. But um, about 30 years ago, I uh, had a sabbatical leave to England and I was fortunate enough to, uh, to work with John Whiteleg and also to meet John Adams, who were doing some research at the time on children's independent mobility. That's the, the freedom that parents give their children to walk to school alone or cycle on main roads alone or visit friends alone. 
And they did this fantastic um, study, which was published as a book called One False Move, uh, Children's Independent Mobility. And uh, what they did was compared the children's freedom in England at the time, in 1990, with uh, children in similar schools in Germany. Uh, And also they had data from 1971, almost two decades before. And what they found was that the children in England had very low levels of freedom, either compared to 20 years before in England or in the German uh, cities. And I thought, well, this is, this is fascinating because I could remember my own childhood and the enormous amounts of freedom I had. Now, walking to school from the age of about five, cycling on my sister's bike, which was a step-through bike, down when I could ride when I was about seven and cycling with friends around the neighbourhood. So I, I uh, came back to Australia and thought, uh, what's it like in Australia and New Zealand? And I collected some data on Australian and New Zealand cities and what I discovered was... Uh, for most of the indicators, children's freedoms in Australia were even lower than the already low uh, freedoms that the, uh, the English children had. And from, from that research, I went on to, to look at children's play in residential streets, then focusing on uh, the damaging role of speed in our society and finally to the publication of our book, Slow Cities, Conquering Our Speed Addiction for Health and Sustainability. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into your, your most recent book uh, in just a moment, but I, I want to still dwell in the past for just a, a little bit more. So in the mid so this was really in the early 1990s. And then in the mid 1990s, you started to, uh, you know, publish, I think you published a paper in uh, 96, reclaiming the residential street as play space. I mean, come on, Paul, what are you talking about? Play space for kids? Exactly, exactly. And that's the reaction I got, even from colleagues of mine who were in the Australian Play Alliance, who were genuinely concerned with promoting children's play. Mm -hmm. The the typical reaction was, hey, hang on, streets are for cars, backyards and playgrounds are for children. And uh, I remember reading a fantastic book that you may have heard of, the Child in the City by Colin Ward, and there's this fantastic quote in it that it seems bizarre, but it makes sense. He said, the failure of an urban environment can be measured in direct proportion to the number of parks and playgrounds. And that seems bizarre, but what he means is the whole city should be a playground. The whole city should be safe enough for a seven-year-old on a bicycle to go exploring, just as I did as a seven-year-old. Uh, and so what we've done is we've we've locked up our children, we've ghetto, ghettoized them, we've segregated them, and now uh, for children to get anywhere in, in many cities, their parents have to drive them. And that's not only a huge cost for children, but it's a huge time cost for parents. And an Australian study found that uh, more than two-thirds of Australian parents spend more than eight hours per week driving their children to school and to other places. So... Um, th- this idea that uh, streets for cars has had some some terrible consequences. Yeah, this definitely reminds me of some of my most influential writers that are out there and, and thought leaders. Obviously, Hans Monderman, uh, one uh, in you know from from the Netherlands, and, and speaking about the the Woonerf and, and you know the, that concept of the play street. 
uh, and then also Ben Hamilton Bailey, uh, also from the UK, uh, you know, talking about, you know, the need for shared space and, and reclaiming, you know, using those words again that you have used, reclaiming that street space. Mm. I like to think of, uh, because I view the world through a lens of how conducive is our built environment to encouraging healthy, active living. And I, the filter that I use is this filter that I, I call an, a, an activity asset lens. When I look out across our, our, our community and say, hey, you know, that park over there, that's an activity asset. You know, the, this trail and, and protected bike lane, these are activity assets. Mm -hmm. But I, I view the street you know, as a potential activity asset if it's not a hostile environment. And what better way of having a an all ages and abilities activity asset where, again, you know, there's that reclaiming of that space. Mm -hmm. you, you, you had a quote in there where the resistance, you know, comes back and say, well, streets are for cars. And that's not entirely true, right? No, that's true. Um, and they weren't always for cars. If you go back to the, the 1920s, um, there was a lot of opposition from people to cars and speed taking over our streets. Uh, in fact, th there was uh, incredible hostility to speed taking over the streets. And it was only through a concerted campaign from the motoring industry, um, what uh, a historian Peter Norton refers to as motordom, that the whole mindset about cars and speed and the street was changed. So, so Motordom was able to convince everyone that speed was good, that the future was, was going to be faster, that everyone would benefit from faster vehicle operating speed. And, of course, it hasn't worked out like that. One of the ways in which Motordom achieved this was by putting the blame on children and pedestrians and coming up with that term, what is the term? Um, jaywalking. Jaywalker, yes, yes. Uh, and, and jay, of course, was a term of derision, um, referring to a rural hick, someone who wasn't at home in the city. So very cleverly changed the whole mindset. But speed in the city was not what people wanted. It was what the motoring lobby wanted and what they got through a very, very carefully orchestrated campaign. So if, if we, if we uh, think back to that time or even think back to... You know, the 1960s, when I was growing up as a child, the children still had a lot of freedom. There were cars around, but not huge amounts of cars in the street that I grew up in. A lot of people had cars, but usually only one car, and there were never cars parked on the street. So the street was a place where we played. And we had this magic, magic sort of warning. You know, if, if we heard a car coming, we'd all yell out, car, and get off the street. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, Peter Norton, uh, again, uh, a professor who is working, you know, diligently in this uh, this arena. His book, fabulous book, Fighting Traffic. Uh, encourage everybody, if you haven't uh, heard of that book, please be sure to pick that up. And also, uh, I did interview Peter, so I do have an episode uh, with uh, Peter Norton. And you also mentioned, you know, the cars and, you know, people saying, you know, hey, yeah, th this is space. And, and we've been co-mingling <laughs> since, uh, since, you know, the car arrived. And, and literally, I mean, it, and Peter talks about this as, you know, as early as the 19-teens and 1920s, as you mentioned, you know, there started to have these conflicts. But it's changed a little bit, especially in North America. I don't know what it's like down under, but gosh, in North America, 
the cars just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So it it really kind of makes things a little, the game's a little different. It's not the same as it was. Mm, exactly. Well, one of, the, one of the issues in the United States is not only are the cars getting bigger, but the speed limits are getting higher. And, and that's not happening in many other places in the world. The speed limits are coming down. So when, when you look at the conditions for people walking in American cities, uh, they're appalling. Uh, the pedestrian fatality rates have been going up in recent decades. And when you look at the reasons for that, more Americans drive than ever before. They're driving bigger cars, as you said. They're driving faster. The speed limits are going up. A lot of the injuries occurring in the outer suburban areas where the roads are fast and people have to drive to get anywhere. And there's this mindset that that speed is good, that speed is um, is going to solve our, our problem. So the addiction to speed that we see throughout the world is probably at its most extreme in the United States. And it's not just the motorists, it's everyone concerned with transport policy or any, any sort of policy. Even people making decisions about where to locate schools, uh, often those decisions are made on the basis of how can we save money for the education department, but in doing so, by placing the schools in, in isolated areas, that forces parents to have to drive their children to those schools. So th there's a whole complex range of issues that mean that in the United States, it's, it's not, not a good role model. So th there's two issues here. One, uh, it's bad news for the United States, but the fact that pedestrian rates are so much higher than injury rates and death rates are so much higher in the United States than in European cities shows that you can have a city where there's cars and, and people don't get killed walking on the streets. Yeah. And the, you, you had so many good things in there, so I'm going to try to uh, define or, or divine a few of them out here. And one, you mentioned the speeds in, in North America, in, in the United States, have been getting higher. I'm hoping that that trend has changed. I get the sense that we are starting to get some traction and cities are starting to, to push back and, and community members are starting to push back. We're starting to see a tamping down of speeds, especially in residential areas. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful in that area. But you also you know, sort of mentioned the 800 pound gorilla in the room, which is land use, because if we're citing schools way over here and mm -hmm. we're citing businesses and places of work way over there, and, you know, and, and residences are, are way over in this area here and it's just one type of residence. It's like we end up making long journeys. And so you've got to get the, the, the land use right. Otherwise, the distances are, you know, formidable. Yes, exactly. So there's a difference between mobility and accessibility. So, so mobility, you know, how, how far can you go in what time? Accessibility, how much can you get to in that time? And um, if I could just explain that in, a, in a, a comparison of, say, Western European cities and North American cities, the Western European cities, there's lots of walking, lots of cycling, lots of public transit. In the North American cities, it's mainly cars. Now, in, the, in those cars, you can travel faster, you know, a fair bit faster than you can in the Western European cities. But the catch is you have to travel further. So in the North American cities, people are travelling almost twice as far 
as they are in the Western European cities. Yes, they're going faster, but that speed doesn't make up for the extra distance. And a fascinating study by a French researcher called Jolly, J-O-L-Y, looked at the travel time budgets in Western European cities and North American cities. And you might assume that because in the American cities, the Canadian cities, they're traveling faster, they spend less time traveling. But in fact, the reverse is true. What you find is that in the North American cities, they're spending about 55 minutes a day traveling within the city. In the Western European cities, it's only 43 minutes a day. So we can conclude from that that the high-speed car-dominated cities pay for their speed with longer travelling times. But, but that's, that's, not the, that's not the end of the story. That's only part of the story because when you factor in the enormous amount of time that the people in North American cities have to spend at work to earn the money to pay for all the costs of the car then they're spending vastly more time on transport than the Western European cities. So there's a paradox there. And the paradox is, if you want to save time, you slow down, you don't speed up. And supposedly the white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland figured that out a long time ago. That's right. (laughs) The hurrier I go, the behinder I get. That's right. Well, and that, and so now we're right back at your book, <laughs> Slow Cities. So l- let's let's kind of look at this. And again, the 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 full title of of the book is Slow Cities: Conquering Our Speed Addiction for Health and Sustainability. And and really the 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 tagline on this too is that counterintuitively that reducing speed of travel within cities saves time for residents and creates more sustainable livable, prosperous, and healthy environments. Okay, sell us. How? Okay. Well, um, speed would save us time if there were no time costs associated with creating that speed and if the city didn't change in response to increases in speed in ways that cancel out those benefits of speed. So there's two issues there. So the, the first issue is the time cost of speed. People who drive their cars think, oh, we're saving time compared to walking or cycling. Um, The time cost for walking are the time you spend walking. Now, you could argue that you've got to spend time putting your shoes on and eating the food to enable you to walk, but you're going to do that anyway. The time cost for a motorist, okay, they're, they're massive. For the average motorist, okay, assuming they own their car, they've got to buy the car, they've got to pay for the fuel, pay for the registration insurance, pay for the parking, pay for the tolls. And then if you take a broader view and look at the um, the external or the indirect costs, they've got to, or someone's got to pay, the whole society has to pay for the cost of road crashes, the cost of pollution, uh, the cost of all the children who are getting fatter and sicker and sadder because they're being driven everywhere, the climate emergency impacts and so it goes on. And if you take all those costs into account, then speed is not free. And if speed is not free, and if time is money, then speed doesn't save us time. And then there's that other issue that you mentioned about the land use changes. As speeds increase, we get more sprawl because speed is usually consumed by motorists not as a way to save time, but as a way to travel further. So sprawl, we know, is incredibly damaging for the climate emergency. But the other thing, and this is a critical factor that most transport planners seem to ignore. They just focus on the mobility and they don't focus on the land use. 
As speeds increase, local shops and schools and emergency services close, which means we have to travel further to get to them. And if we just give you one example about ambulance services and response times, uh, you might think that in a city with fast roads that ambulance response times are better. In fact, just the opposite occurs. If you look at higher density, slower environments and compare them with high speed, low density environments. In the low density environments, not only are people living further apart, but the ambulance stations are further apart, which means that the ambulance drivers have to travel further to get there. And what that means is that out of hospital cardiac arrests are more likely to result in fatalities in the high speed environment. So. So speed is bad for our health in many more ways than, than people realize. Yeah. And going back to your, your earlier work and looking at that street space and how conducive or inconducive it is to, you know, children being able to play and, and people being able to occupy the street space as motor vehicle speeds increase, it makes it that environment just becomes that much more hostile, that much more dangerous. Yes. And it's just, and it's not even just too limited to the street itself. As speeds go up, the noise pollution goes up. Yes. And so it, it just, the, the externalities of speed are just so insidious. So how do we break our addiction to speed? Uh, that's that's a huge problem. It's a, it's a wicked problem because we've got we've got so many variables as you just pointed out. We've got vested interests, so we've got the motoring lobby wanting to maintain our addiction to speed, and as individuals, we have our own addiction to speed. You know, when when most motorists leave home, they want to get to wherever they're going as quickly as possible. If they're driving along and there's more than one lane, and they see a gap in the lane next to them, they'll get into that. It's not going to get them anywhere, but there's this addiction to speed and people react with hostility to any attempt to put the brakes on. So uh, whenever I suggest that uh, we should reduce speed limits in residential areas in Australian cities to 30 kilometres an hour, the reaction is, you know, either that's a ridiculous idea or um, it, it, it won't happen uh, or a common one is, oh, you can't do that here. Yeah, you can do that in Pontevedra in Spain, but you can't do that here. So, you know, how do we get around this? Now, that 30 kilometre hour speed limit one, one explanation that I found really, really gets people to stop and think is the explanation of the difference between stopping from 30 kilometres an hour and stopping from 50 kilometres an hour. And there, there was a, a paper written that described this in great detail, but I'll just give you a quick summary. Imagine driving along at 30 kilometres an hour. Someone jumps out in front of you. It takes a while to react and then you hit the brakes and you stop very quickly because the laws of physics, you know, kinetic, kinetic energy uh, yeah, equals half times mass times velocity squared means that from 30 kilometres an hour it doesn't take very long to stop. So your total stopping distance is 13 metres. If in exactly the same circumstances you were doing 50 kilometres an hour, you would clearly hit the person who jumped out in front of you. And when you ask people what speed do you think you'd hit them at, most people say, oh, 30, 40 kilometres an hour. No, you would hit them at 50 kilometres an hour because you hadn't had time to hit the brakes. So the, the difference there is at 30 kilometres an hour, there's no injury, there's, there's no impact, there's nothing. At 50 kilometres an hour, 
you had very likely either killed or seriously injured someone. So the difference between 30 and 50 people say that's not very much. It could be the difference between life and death. So that's that's one way in which we can uh, change the mindset. Um, but it, it's not just a matter of changing the mindset of individual drivers. We have to change the mindset of policymakers and we have to change the whole way in which professionals are educated. Uh, at the moment, professionals get a professional training that is purely focused, well, not purely focused, but mainly focused on increasing vehicle operating speed on the assumption that that will save time. Now, clearly, as, as, as we've talked about already, that is not the case. In fact, just the reverse, speed steals our time, steals our money and steals our health. So we need to get that message across to professionals, professional traffic engineering courses, transport planning courses, any sort of policy-oriented courses that are involved with city or city planning or transport planning. So we need to get people to think holistically about how speed destroys the city, destroys our health, and has huge implications for some of the, the major global challenges facing the world. In fact, if we want to address some of those major challenges, and I can, I can go through those and describe them, then what we need to do is, is simply slow our cities down. We have to do that. And, and one way in which it's absolutely critical is our, our response to the climate emergency. We cannot address the climate emergency unless we slow our cities. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest challenges is that that description, the words that we're using when we say we need to slow our cities down and it, it, that inherently sounds negative. It does, yes. And we even use the word slow for someone who cognitively isn't there. So part of our challenge is that the the societal view of the word slow is negative. Yes, now, that, that is changing. And, and you're right, it is associated with a lot of pejorative synonyms, you know, laziness, lossful, you know, mentally deficient. But it can also be associated with being relaxed, being calm and, and being more efficient. So we, we need to change that. And and it's and it's happening, right, though, Paul? It's happening. Yes. Yes. Even when we think of it, so if we twist that around a little bit and we say, well, well, no, when we say we need to slow things down, we're not saying that's a bad thing. It's a good thing. The whole slow foods movement and yes. Oh, oh, that's what you're talking about. But it it does it does beg one to think about can we come up with a more precise word or descriptor that encapsulates what we're talking about, but doesn't cut, you know, it isn't that extra lift of having to, oh, by the way, dot, dot, dot. I don't mean it in this way. I mean it in this way. Yes. Yeah. You get where I'm going on that? I, I, I do. I think there's two issues there. One is that slow has less of a negative meaning than it did you know, a few decades ago. And, and as you mentioned, the slow food movement, slow parenting. I mean, that's that's really important. In, in, if you go back to children, Carl Honore uh, has this idea that children are not born obsessed with speed and productivity. Society makes them that way. And I felt quite guilty when I, when I read his chapter on, I think it was called Raising an Unhurried Child, when he said that one of the most common phrases that parents use when they bring up their own children is, and you can probably guess, come on, hurry up, 
get in the car, quick, we'll be late, come on, hurry up. So we instill this hurry virus into our children. So that, that, is, that is changing. And the funny thing is, too, is at the same time, many of those very same parents are, are, are like, you know, trying to get their kids to sit down and, and don't fidget. You know, it's like on one end, they're saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. You got to da, 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 da. And then on another end, when, when it serves their purpose, they're like, no, slow down, sit down, stay still. Which do you want? <laughs> yes, it's, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a problem. Uh, but also getting back to your other point about the, the, the meaning of the word slow, um, I gave a talk just uh, a week or two ago for the Institute of Engineers in Australia. And the title of that talk was, Is Faster Always Better in City Transport? And it generated uh, a lot of discussion. So I think if we just don't use the word slow and say, is faster always better and leave it as a question mark, that might be some way to get people thinking. Right. And I think when, when people actually stop and think about it, even for a little while, and they, they realise that speed has stolen from them, and, and, and people don't like being told that they've had something stolen from them, but speed has literally stolen from us our time, our money, and our health. And that health can be seen as not just human health, but economic health and environmental health. And we can see that at the global scale as well. All of the key global challenges will not be addressed unless we slow our city transport. And a broader concept, but something that is outside my ambit of research is, you know, slow our whole lives down, slow down everything that we do. Yeah. And I would even go so far as to say that speed and haste it also can steal our pleasure. Because, you know, and, and, and going back to a, a previous episode that I had on the podcast here with David Nuttall, we were talking about, he's a cartographer, and so we were talking about the mapping algorithms of getting from one place to another and how the algorithms are almost always based on fastest route, you know, from A yes. to B, fastest route. Yes. And yes. If, if that's the algorithm that we use and apply to our life all the time, then we don't take the time to say, well, no, I don't want necessarily the fastest route. I may want the most pleasurable route. Yes. Or the most explorative route or, you know, or a route that takes in some other wonderful aspects that enrich my life. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I can give you a couple of personal anecdotes that illustrate that. I had a, another sabbatical leave um, about 10 years after my first one back to England, and that was at a time when the exchange rate was terrible for Australians. And our plan was to buy a car or hire a car, but we couldn't afford to do that. So my, my wife and 10-year-old son and I decided that we'd walk and catch buses and trains. And after a couple of months, we noticed that we were so much more relaxed, you know, we were fitter, we were healthier. Uh, we'd met so many people and we'd saved a huge amount of money. So when we came back to Australia, at that stage we had two cars. We sold the second car and I started regularly commuting to work by, by bicycle or by bus. Now, if I went by bicycle, I could go along the main roads uh, on these really what I consider incredibly dangerous cycle paths, you know, right next to the main roads with a little bit of paint. Um, with cars going past at 80 plus kilometres an hour. Or I could take a much more circuitous route and ride along past the Murrumbidgee River, past Lake Burley Griffin, 
uh, beautiful, beautiful scenery. So I'd always take, well, actually I once went the fast route, but I decided for safety reasons it wasn't worth doing. But it was just so much more pleasant uh, taking the longer route. So you're right. Um, and at, at the time when I started doing this, um, it, it was so much fun. And then later when our son moved to Melbourne and he lived within about two minutes' walk from the school where he was a school teacher, I explained to him one day that he was missing out on all the fun that I had cycling to work. Uh, you know, his two-minute work was much more efficient, much quicker, but there was no fun involved. Yeah. One of the reoccurring themes here on the podcast is this impact that travel has on us. You just mentioned it, you know, you were away at a different location and, and had experience and then that helped influence and impact. It's not always in the positive direction because I've also heard people explaining that, yeah, you know, I was visiting XYZ city in North America and I was just blown away by how bad it was and how hostile it was. And then I came to appreciate the things that were positive in, in my own neighborhood, where, wherever that was. But that, that impact, that ability to see, oh gosh, a different way, and then be able to be able to envision, especially if it's a positive comparison of being able to envision a, a better way, a more pleasurable way, yes. and perhaps a, a slower way of life. Yes. Taking time to smell the roses. Exactly. I think what you're getting at there, a lot of people uh, assume that faster is always better, and they assume that slowing down from, say, 50 kilometres an hour to 30 kilometres an hour is going to destroy their lives. And a, a good example of how a whole city was changed from 50 to 30 despite the fact that the public didn't want it, was Graz, G-R-A-Z, in, in Austria, where in the early 90s the government decided that they would introduce a blanket 30 kilometres an hour across the entire city, apart from the main road where the speed limit would be 50. And the public said, no, no, we don't want it. And the the argument, just as, just as you suggested, what from the government was that how would they know if they didn't want it, if they haven't experienced it? We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> so they introduced a trial. And after 18 months, the majority of people, including the majority of motorists, thought that the 30-kilometre-hour speed limits was a great idea. Okay? It was quieter, less pollution, safer. Uh, there were more people walking and cycling. Uh, it was just so much better. But they had to experience that. Now, that was a situation where... The people in the same city didn't have to go anywhere to experience it. But if you were to go to a city and wanted to experience what a, a slow city looks like across a whole city, one of the best cities in the world, which I've never been to but would love to visit, is Pontevedra in Spain. Now, Pontevedra back in 1999 was a city dominated by speed, dominated by motor car traffic. And then a new mayor came in, Mayor Lorez. He's got some other names, but uh, we haven't got time to pronounce them all. So he came in in 1999. He's been re-elected six times. So what he's doing is very popular. And his attitude was he used to be a medical doctor and he said we can, we can treat the city in the same way as we treat a human patient. So what he did was he effectively slowed the city. So he introduced uh, 30 kilometre an hour or even 20 in some cases speed limits throughout the city. He restricted parking in the city. 
Uh, he gave a lot more space to people walking and cycling. Uh, and now, as a consequence of that, 80% of children walk. A uh, huge number of people um, use walking and cycling on a daily basis, despite the fact that there's quite a high ownership of cars in Pontevedra. And the most amazing thing, I can't remember the exact dates, but uh, over one 10-year period, just after he became mayor, there was 30 uh, road crash deaths in Pontevedra. In another 10-year period, there was zero. So 30 Zero. That that's the sort of achievement you can get. And the other positive is that um, economically, Pontevedra is doing really well, where where other towns in the in the region in Spain are in decline. So it's a win 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 win. You know that everyone's happier. The, the the retailers are doing better. The economy is doing better. People aren't getting killed. They're happier. They're fitter. And the success when a mayor gets re-elected six times. He must be doing something that people actually approve of. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to what we were talking about or, you know, before. This is counterintuitive because we have been scripted to believe that, you know, the vibrancy of the community and the success of the economy, we need this engine. There's the the motor, the motor dump coming through again. We need this engine of economic growth to be revving at high speed. Yeah. I mean, we've been brainwashed to talk like this, Yes, but you're absolutely right. You know, that that slowing down now cities around the world are are embracing this. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we even here in North America, we're starting to embrace the concept, especially in residential streets, that the speeds need to slow down. Mm-hmm. But around the world, we're, we're seeing more and more cities in, in the UK, you know, the 20 is plenty, you know, campaign happening. And, uh, and, and for those uh, here in North America who are maybe challenged with the kilometers, so 30 kilometers per hour, is about 17 miles per hour. So the the Brits with their their 20 is plenty. They're basically saying, you know, 20 miles per hour is is sufficient. And it is. It's sufficient. And to your point from earlier is when motor vehicles are traveling at these slower speeds and slower is good, folks, you can avoid so many of those collisions that happen. You can avoid the negative externalities of that additional noise pollution, that additional pollution that's hitting. Uh, the, the You can avoid having it be an overly hostile environment until we downsize the size of these motor vehicles in North America and, and other locations. Uh, yeah, that's we can't change that necessarily just by slowing vehicles down, but hopefully that if we de-emphasize getting from place to place as fast as possible, hopefully, you know, we'll also sort of, you know, re-trigger or rejigger our brains a little bit here to to slowing down and, and taking that stroll and taking the bike ride. Because ultimately what we've seen worldwide, and that's what I'm going to tee up here for you in just a moment, is with the pandemic, we have seen with the decrease in the the number of motor vehicles out on our streets and for people needing to be able to get out of their houses, out of lockdown and needing space because the sidewalks were too narrow for people to be able to remain physically distanced. City after city around the globe, people that I've been speaking with, yeah, the number of people 
walking and cycling in the middle of the street have just, you know, quadrupled and got, you know, had tenfold increases. What have you been seeing in Australia? And I know that you guys are still in the midst of fighting this pandemic. It's, it's, you taking another turn for the worse there. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, in, in Victoria, in Melbourne in particular, um, there's been a, a very worrying um, outbreak of, of COVID again. Um, so they're in lockdown at the moment and uh, they've had one week and they've just extended that to another week and we'll see how we go. But yes, you're right. Um, COVID, as devastating as it was, did uh, allow people to make health a higher priority than speed. And almost overnight, using lighter, quicker, cheaper interventions, lanes were, were closed off, streets were given back to uh, outdoor cafes, cycleways, uh, like in, in Paris, about, I think, 650 kilometres of cycleways were created just by taking the car parking space away. So what, what this showed was that with incredible speed, you could change the city. And uh, just as, as Peter Norton talked about the incredible change in mindset in the ni- 1920s, the changes that you talk about showed that those changes can occur if we just if we just decide to make health the priority rather than speed. Now, the the challenge is, will there be a pressure to go back to normal, meaning, you know, high-speed traffic, pollution, road crashes, you know, impact on the climate emergency and so on? And, of course, there will be that pressure. So we need to resist that pressure. Now, the the link between COVID and, and speed, you can see quite clearly in that, the cities that were most affected by COVID were the cities with high-speed transport, with lots of freeways, lots of pollution. And so if you've got a city where there's lots of freeways, people can't walk or cycle, so they're not, not getting exercise, there's two things there. One, the pollution is going to make them more susceptible to COVID, and two, the lack of physical activity is going to make them more susceptible to COVID. So if we want to increase people's resistance we need to slow the cities down, we need to reduce the level of pollution, and we need to promote um, physical activity in, in people's daily lives. Uh, there's also, on this COVID thing, the idea that you can escape from COVID by going to live in you know, a rural area or an exurb or in the outer suburbs. And, and that's, that's not going to work because if you do go and live in those areas, unless you stay there forever, you don't have to go out to the hardware store or to the supermarket or even to work. And when you do that, those places became petri dishes for the spread of COVID and you can then spread COVID across a huge area. So the the best place to be would be in a, a walkable urban environment. And the other thing you can do with this is to introduce the, the idea of 15 or 20 minute cities. So if you get a whole series of 15 or 20 minute cities and an outbreak occurs, you can close off that city, still allow it to operate, but keep it separated from the rest of the city. And that 15 minute city, that's that's a big part of the planning uh, procedures in in Paris. Uh, It's spread to a whole lot of other places, uh, Ottawa, for example, Seattle, I think, and even Melbourne now, part of the Melbourne Metropolitan Planning Strategy is to try and develop 20-minute neighbourhoods, the idea that um, most things you want on a daily basis are within a 20-minute walk, cycle or or transit trip from your home. 
So yeah, that 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 um, as devastating as it was, COVID provided opportunities. And the other thing I, th- I think we should say about COVID is that yeah, it was serious, but the hurry virus is more serious. Okay, the hurry virus, what it's doing to to road crashes. We got. 1.35 million road deaths in 2019. And what it's doing to pollution, more people get killed by air pollution than by road crash deaths. And what it's doing to, to the lack of physical activity. Uh, it's been estimated that we could avoid uh, about 5 million deaths per year if we just got people to move more. And, and one way to do that is to slow down the traffic and get people out walking and cycling. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned Melbourne, and uh, uh, and and I believe you said that your son is is in in that city. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Yes, he, he lives in a an inner suburb in a very walkable environment. You, you're probably aware of the term walk score. The walk score in 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 his street is ninety nine. I don't know why we went wrong. <laughs> he didn't get the perfect hundred, but yes. Uh, there, there are parts of Melbourne that are incredibly walkable and, you know, within about 5Ks of the central business district, it is incredibly walkable. As you get further and further out, you get um, many of the problems you get in, in any Australian or North American city with uh, massive reliance on cars. Yeah. Now, are you all experiencing the same sort of challenges that we see in North America where the cities that have the highest quality of life and the highest walk scores are, you know, in demand and are, are just, you know, not affordable for, for, for the average person? Uh, unfortunately, yes, that, that is very much the case. So I think if we want to address this, and this gets back to that issue I mentioned before, it's not just the transport planners, it's, it's everyone concerned with every other aspect of the city, education and housing and I don't know what term you use in North America, but um, in terms of social housing, does that make any sense to you? The, yeah, yeah. The, 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 um, the idea, so if we have a, a new housing development, then it's really important that uh, we make space for, for low-income earners and so the areas don't just become gentrified. Uh, that is, that is a, a massively important problem. Of course... Uh, in terms of the, the slow city that Rodney Tolley and I uh, argue for, it's not just a matter of slowing down the central city areas, it's a matter of slowing down the entire city. And we argue quite, quite strongly in our book that slowing the city doesn't mean turning it back on suburbia. Okay? It's a bigger challenge, it's a huge challenge, but it can be addressed with things like, what's it called, sprawl repair? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and also, in, in terms of what we can do to make cycling safer, it's, it's quite uh, conceivable that we can put separated cycle lanes uh, along major roads in the centre of cities, but we can't do that throughout the city. What we can do quite, quite easily, and this, this has been done in, in many cities throughout Europe, is introduce 30 kilometre hour speed limits throughout the city. So that means that everybody in all areas of the city will benefit from from slower speeds. Yeah. And of course, one of the things that, that we have learned through experience is we can't just by edict say that, you know, the speed limit is. We have to actually make the design changes so that it is intuitive to 
the motor vehicle driver that this is a different environment. I am in a, I am on a bicycle priority street. Exactly. To use the to use the Dutch term, a fietsstraat. I'm on a fietsstraat now. You know, 30 kilometers per hour is my is my speed limit, and I know that I need to stay back and be patient and stay behind the the person on the bike because that person has the priority. It it's you know it it shifts the mind. It slows us down. Yes. So yeah, and it's it sounds like we need to be, build more of these you know strange creatures, these slow cities and these active towns. I guess th- there's a market for them. We need to build more of them. Well, actually, John, that, that, that's, that's right. Um, the, the self-explaining road is, is a great idea, but just reducing the speed limit, the posted speed limit, can, can reduce the speed just a little bit, and even a minor reduction in speed can have a huge impact on road safety. But getting back to whether we need to, to build more of these slow cities, uh, you mentioned that people assume that you need speed for you know, the economic engine, and, and you also mentioned walkability. If you look at sort of the big companies in the United States uh, and look at what they've done over the last 10 years, a lot of them have moved and they've moved to walk, uh, places that have much higher walkability. The walk scores have increased dramatically. So they recognise that one of the sort of the engines of economic growth is what's called the creative class of young educated professionals. And young educated professionals don't want to live in a car-dominated environment. They they want to live in a walkable environment that's safe and pleasant, uh, where they can go out and meet other people from the creative class. And that's really important for generating the sort of economic development that makes cities thrive in the current global climate. So uh, companies are recognising that. They're moving away from those less walkable areas to the much more walkable areas. And that, of course, is is adding to the vibrancy of, of those cities and those areas. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, that's it's these younger generations that have really, I think, helped change the game because they they they're not drive they're not driving motor vehicles at the same rates of previous generations. Yes. They have a desire to be closer to meaningful destinations. And, uh, and, and even their, their habitation patterns are just different. They don't, they don't envision huge houses and lots of cars. And so, so hopefully that will continue. (laughs) So I'm looking at all the different chapters here in, in the book, and it looks like we've pretty much touched at least briefly on everything. Is there anything that we haven't yet discussed that you want to make sure that we share with the audience? Well, I think one of the things that that is critically important is that we have a, a series of major global challenges. So we've got we've got the problem of an inactivity epidemic. Okay, I mentioned that uh, we could save five million lives a year if we got more people active. We've got huge numbers of road crash deaths. We've got air pollution, a pandemic emergency, a climate and ecological emergency. And the goal of faster vehicle operating speed exacerbates all those problems and the strategy of slowing city transport helps alleviate all of those problems. Yeah. So if, if we want to discourage walking and cycling, speed up the city. If we want to encourage walking and cycling, 
slow it down, create slow streets where it becomes enjoyable to go walking and, and it's also safe to let your children walk and cycle, especially to school. And that frees up enormous amounts of time for parents as well. Even, as I've explained, even a slight increase in speed can have a massive negative impact on road safety. So we can we can really address the, the road safety, the road carnage by slowing our cities down. Air pollution, encouraging speed encourages more driving, which means more pollution at whatever speed people are driving. Uh, and then COVID, as I've explained, COVID attacks people in more polluted uh, cities or where they don't have enough exercise. So that's, uh, that's another issue. Uh, and then high-speed transport uses more energy, which means it creates more pollution. It's not just in the car operating that it creates more pollution. It's in the creation of everything that goes with it, including uh, the road infrastructure, the parking infrastructure, and the cement and the asphalt that's involved in that. And if, if the cement industry were a country, it would be the third biggest CO2 polluter in the world. Hmm. So, so the, the, the solution's really simple. If we want to address those huge global challenges, just slow the cities down. Yeah. Fascinating. And, you know, and that is reimagining the city for a healthier future. Yes, exactly. There's a, there's a quote in the, um, the, the final chapter of our book that comes from one of the Back to the Future movies. Okay? Your future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. Yeah, fantastic. And since I'm speaking to you in the future, we're channeling that movie. We are indeed. We are indeed. <laughs> Paul, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, John. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And, uh, and yeah, welcome to the future. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 81 of the Active Towns podcast. I sure hope you enjoyed this fascinating discussion with Professor Tranter as much as I did. As you can tell, our future will be bright if we can just slow down our cities closer to human speeds, which in large part will be supported by returning our neighborhoods and downtown urban cores back to human scale. These issues are universal with cities around the globe battling to reverse the negative externalities, including chronic disease, economic stress, and cataclysmic climate change brought about in large part by our addiction to speed and over-reliance on single occupancy motor vehicles. I encourage you all to explore Professor Tranter's work. I've included all the necessary links in the show notes and out on the landing page for this episode on the Active Towns website. For those of you following along with my Active Towns travels on social media, you know that I was visiting Boulder, Colorado this weekend to document some newly opened infrastructure, including a fabulous multi-use path underpass that provides active modes with a safe and comfortable way to circumvent the formidable barrier that is the multi-lane high-speed Foothills Parkway. I'm not sure how many pathway underpasses this makes for the city of Boulder, but they must be closing in on 100. Clearly, this is a distinguishing strength of their connected off-street active mobility network. By the way, my ability to travel and document places like Boulder and even Carmel, Indiana, such as I did the week before last, is directly related to my ability to raise funds. So if you've enjoyed this podcast and appreciate my efforts to profile the inspiring advances happening around the globe to promote active living and active mobility, please help me out by making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. 
Each and every donation is truly appreciated and really does make a huge difference in allowing me the ability to continue producing this content and growing the culture of activity movement. Doing so is easy. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to activetowns.org and navigate over to the donate page. Thank you so very much for your support and for tuning in. That's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.